In what ways can creativity shape religious formation in young adult lives? Catherine Douglas is Assistant Professor of Educational Ministry and Practical Theology at Seattle Pacific University in Seattle, Washington. In this episode, Katie talks with me about her new book, Creative in the Image of God, An Aesthetic Practical Theology of Young Adult Faith, where she offers a fresh approach to ministry with young adults and ignites imagination about the role art plays in a life of faith, providing an embodied way of knowing God. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Katie, thank you so much for um, trying to find a quiet place in your house today to record this conversation with me. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be together, even though it's virtual. I know. Far apart. Coast to coast. Um, Your work that's now published um, in the book called Creative in the Image of God, an Aesthetic Practical Theology of Young Adult Faith, It represents, I know, years of research and study on the spiritual lives and practices of young adults. Before we jump into the meat of the topic, um, would you please tell me how you came to do this work? I mean, why young adults, why creativity, and why those things right now? That's a great question. I have this distinct memory of sitting with Gordon McCoskey, and um, I had pitched all these different ideas for research to him. And he had said, you know, your heart's not really in any of those. What do you really want to do? And we were on a trip to the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, with a seminary class. And I was had helped lead and plan the trip. And I said, what I really would love to study is why is this such a meaningful experience to people that we can take them out of their normal context come visit this art museum and everyone has these really deep insights and feels connected to each other. They feel like they're having these insights about God. And I find that I have those types of meaningful connections as well that are these really existential moments created to art. And I wanted to study, you know, why why is it so meaningful or what makes it so meaningful? I wasn't really interested in the philosophy of art or what defines art, but our experience of art and um, how, that sh- how that's connected to our faith. Great. We're going to talk a lot about and use the term young adult. So it's probably a good idea if you would... Tell us a little bit how you understand the term young adult. I know it's received a good bit of study lately. And so just some understanding of how you are using that term throughout your work. Yeah. So um, young adulthood is something that has fascinated psychologists and sociologists over the years. In an article in the New York Times, Robert Wethnow was quoted as calling this period the Odyssey years, that we think about this as this stage of life when young adults have a chance to go out and do anything. The world is their oyster. They have plenty of free time and all the resources to do whatever they want. And the term emerging adulthood came out of Jeffrey Jensen Arnett's research as a psychologist. And he said that this period of time is actually lengthening within the lifespan. So if you think of Erickson's stages of development, we spend some years um, in different stages where we're negotiating things. And he proposed introducing a new stage after youth called young adulthood before people enter into adulthood, where we're renegotiating things in our life. One of the challenges I see in his study is that he's mostly talking about college students. Um, So this is in many ways geared toward an upper middle class or a middle class demographic. 
There are other researchers out there like Catherine Newman. Um, she has a book called The Accordion Family, and she has said that if you look about at um, young adulthood in different parts of the country, young adults are negotiating different things, but you also can get a glimpse of what is happening for young adults across the globe that's not divided by class. And you see that in all of these different societies, like in Japan or Spain or Italy, for example, young adults are often the ones in society who are praised and celebrated or blamed for what is going on. For example, during a recession, which we're definitely entering one now, young adults are often blamed or celebrated. So in Spain, for example, when there are no jobs for young people and young people are unemployed, there's um, this blame that happens and it's toward the Spanish government. Why have you not created more jobs for these young adults who are so eager to work hard? In Italy, um, mothers, Italian mothers will say, I love that my kids stay at home with me. They're celebrated for their choice to live at home. Um, and it's said, you know, these, these children, they really value my cooking. They value family. Look at how great it is that young adults are making this choice. It, it exemplifies values in society. And so one of the things that has happened in the U.S. is during a recession, um, the millennials especially, and now we'll see how young adults that are entering col their college years now are bearing um, either the burden of praise or blame. Um, but at least for the millennials, they were blamed for a lot of things like the closing of businesses uh, because they refused to shop in big box stores. Um, instead, they're shopping online. So anyway, I chose to use the term young adult because I wanted to move toward that kind of larger perspective on young adult life rather than on one that's focused on different tasks that are accomplished during young adult years, which are often connected to marriage, having a child, and being um, fully reliant on your own income. You describe early in the book the common trend um, that young adults move away from their faith in the stage of emerging adulthood or young adulthood. Yet you provide more nuance to this. Like a lot of people talk about the nuns, right? That now in a, in a form they can check off this box um, when it asks about their religious affiliation, there's this new option that says none. And that, that the number of people marking that off in this age bracket is skyrocketing. It has everyone in the church pretty nervous. But when you talk about this, you're arguing that many of the nuns as they're being called, are actually sums. And um, a lack of religiousness, in quotes, does not correlate with a lack of faith. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so the National Study of Youth and Religion has gone through a number of waves at this point. And one of the things that happened after this research that was really largely quantitative, after it was collected, a woman named Elizabeth Drescher, who's a professor in California said, you know, I'd really like to actually take a closer look and do some qualitative research around the group that selected none as their identity. And she went and followed up with a lot of the people who had been part of that study. And she said, you know, I want you to tell me about your life, about your faith, um, what you believe. So about 40% of those who select none are not necessarily atheists or agnostic, but they do believe in God, but feel like they've been pushed away from congregational life for various reasons. And their reasons ranged widely. Some felt that the church was too conservative, not affirming um, their gay friends and including the LGBTQ community among the congregation. Some felt that the church was too inactive around issues of justice and said, you know, 
If the church were being faithful to the gospel, they would be more active. Some, as they moved away from home, just said, you know what, I've been moving a lot and I just haven't really reconnected with a community. So it's not honest to say I'm a practicing Christian because I'm just really mobile. Among that group, she also found that social gatherings around food were important. She had Her chapters all start with F. Faith, food, friends, and Fido. A lot of them find companionship in dogs or pets. But I thought the most surprising thing and, and really encouraging trend was that um, a lack of religious affiliation did not mean a lack of faith. And I think what challenge that poses to the church is for us to ask, if we believe that young adults are actually part of the Christian church, lowercase c, they're part of the uh, priesthood of all believers, they're part of the holy Catholic church that we name in the Apostles' Creed, then how do we make room for their expressions of faith? Or how do we make sure that we're paying attention to where their faith is being expressed? And in what ways are their critiques of the institutionalized church something that we maybe need to hear and then can respond to? So it's in sort of that context, then you jumped in to your exploration of creativity and young adults. In this book, you draw on some research that you did that you conducted with 30 young adults. Can you paint sort of in broad brushstrokes enough explanation of that so that the listeners can grasp what you did um, and what you draw from it? Right. So I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian USA uh, denomination. And so my research has really focused on young adult experiences of faith within the Reformed tradition. So in order to do a research study that wasn't just random, but actually focused on the faith experiences of a particular group of people, I chose to interview those who were connected with the Reformed tradition, so the Presbyterian tradition specifically, and to invite them to share with me the role that the arts play in their faith lives. I had various ways I contacted different people. I let a lot of people know I was doing the study. And then as I had different contacts out there, I would invite people to be interviewed by me. So some of them I interviewed in person, some were interviewed over the phone. And what was interesting, I ended up actually interviewing 34 people, but everyone I asked actually said yes, which was sort of surprising to me. It was sort of a finding that I didn't mean to find. And they were really eager for somebody to ask them, what do you believe? You know, um, tell me about your faith. How do you practice your faith? So four of them didn't qualify for the study because they were either not specifically in the age bracket that I was researching, which was between 18 and 30, or they were not somehow connected either through their upbringing or through their current participation in a Presbyterian church. And what I wanted to do also when I did these interviews was to not only include those who were, you know, actively selecting or checking the box Christian, but include some who might have selected none and maybe grew up in the church but have kind of moved away. So it was really great to um, have that kind of slice. So it's a close look at the faith experiences specifically of Presbyterian young adults. And then one of the things that was really interesting was just to hear about kind of their current practice. Um, some of them, almost all of them were still currently involved in churches, except for maybe two. And then almost all of them said the arts were really important to them, although they were not professional artists. But there was one who said, you know, it's not really that important to me. I'm just more of an intellectual person and not interested in the arts. Hmm. What surprised you most in the process of inter interviewing those 30 young people? 
I think, so I entered into these interviews thinking, okay, I'm going to offer to buy them coffee and I want them to feel like they're compensated for their time. So when you do research, you always want to make sure you're compensating people fairly, but it's not overly burdensome to participate in an interview. So a reasonable compensation would be, you know, like, can I offer you a gift, a small gift card, or can I buy you coffee? All of them actually declined any offer I made for compensation. They were all happy to buy their own coffee. I think for them, it felt like that was keeping things on even ground. And then the most surprising thing was at the end of the interview, a lot of them said, thank you. They said, you know, wow, no one's really asked me this before. It was really fun to think about these things. And it kind of gave them an opportunity to narrate their own faith journey and the way they saw God at work in their life. Another surprising thing was that even a, a couple of them would describe themselves as an atheist now, and they all also talked about how they prayed and how they did many things that I would say did not qualify them as an atheist, but they would talk about their own beliefs and they would talk about God and they talked about Jesus and yet personally felt that the label of atheist was more authentic. And this goes back to Drescher's research, which says that nun category is much more complicated uh, when we look close closely at the lives of the individuals who select that box. Yeah, there's something to be learned there for the church and the, it was nice to be asked and have someone listen. Also, I think that, that when we see, for example, in the Bible, like doubting Thomas, doubt is such an important part of people's faith. And some of the people who were closest to Jesus didn't understand or they doubted. And to me, that was really significant as well to say, wow, how do we affirm doubt or include doubt as part of a Christian journey or Christian identity. So you're a Presbyterian pastor. You focused largely on young people in the PCUSA, the Reformed tradition. So you spend a good bit of time in the book unpacking the idea, the concept of the Imago Dei. And of course, you then include an entire chapter on it as it pertains to Reformed theology. Right. So that's the tradition you're coming from. That's the, the tradition in which these people had been raised at some point or another. Can you give us a brief sketch of how you interact with Calvin, Bart, Pannenberg in, in your, the theological aspects of your book? Um, sure. Yeah. So in the reform tradition, we have this kind of tension that we're always living with, which is we love the arts but we're afraid of them at the same time. <laughs> and this is part of our heritage. So it felt like I needed to address that. So John Calvin talks in his Institutes of the Christian Religion about how the arts are so valuable as a teacher, they can aid in our understanding, and yet they um, can lead us into idolatry. So he's really afraid of them. And he made aesthetic choices about worship spaces. He said, you know what, we need to get rid of all images within a church. And yet at this, in the, almost the same breath, and definitely within the same work, he said, artists are, you know, able to provide, you know, beautiful things for us that enrich our lives and can even deepen our spiritual life. So he kind of was created this paradox within his own theology. And Karl Barth had a similar concern. So he also loved art. He had deep theological insights from the Eisenhain altarpiece, which is a piece that he would often look at. And yet he was afraid that the arts would misrepresent God and could distract us from worshiping the true God. 
and one of the, my favorite things that he said was, he said, you know, the problem with the Dutch is they make Jesus too human and too relatable. And the Italians, they make Jesus too godlike. He's too perfect. Nobody has captured the true mystery and nuance of the two natures of Christ. And so he said, you know, when we, we can't just let these artists kind of be our only theologians. And yet both of them loved art. Both of them thought that creative expression was one way that we saw the work of the image of God within us. Creativity was a sign that we were created in the image of a creator. And then I kind of moved toward more contemporary theologians. And um, one of the professors that I was able to have at Princeton Seminary before he retired was Wenzel van Hastien. And he said, he was doing some work connecting early cave paintings, kind of these really early art expressions with the image of God within humanity. So anthropologists, one of the things questions they ask is how can we identify the first human beings? And Van Hastien says, well, if you look back, who are the earliest people that are trying to connect with others through symbolic communication? or creative expression. And he says, if we look at these early cave paintings, it's some of the earliest art that we have that's made. And he uses Wolfhart Pannenberg to say that there's this impulse within each person and we want to know another person and to be known by them and to communicate back and forth in a way that kind of amplifies love and, and shows our connectedness to one another. And I didn't include this in the book, but one of my favorite theologians to read right now, actually, is Brian Bantam. And he talks about how, through his systematic theology called the death of race, how this is our fundamental orientation from the beginning of creation is to be oriented toward one another, to be connected to someone else and to see ourselves as connected. And one of the ways that we kind of articulate that connection to one another um, can be through the arts and the the desire to communicate. How do the arts help us express both our collective and individual Imago Dei? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so my findings um, were kind of summarized into three, three big points. Um, one is that the arts help us connect with one another across time and space, but also in the present moment. So when we sing a hymn together, we are connected to a group of people who are also singing. But it also connects us with the people from the past who a community that created this song, maybe a song of lament or a song of praise that was during a battle or a, or a horrible time during life. Young adults that I interviewed told me that singing songs from Taze were especially meaningful. If they had been to Taze, it helped them stay connected to the community. Another way that young adults talked about the role that the arts play in their faith lives is is that it helps them express who they feel God made them to be. So the imago Dei within them is on full display when they're doing the thing that they feel engages their creativity. What was so interesting to me about this is I went into the research without a very specific definition of what art counted, what counted as art. And so one young man I interviewed was a, a DJ and he said, I love it when I'm playing music and people are dancing and they're all dancing together. And I've used my creative gifts at making music and mixing music to bring people together in this common shared experience of dancing, this bonding experience that we all have, that we all acknowledge we're connected to each other. And I feel like God gave me the gifts to do that. The third finding was around being open to God's presence. So 
Pannenberg talks about this exocentric impulse within each person that we're oriented to be um, in relationship to the other and not just any other, like to humans, yes, of course, but also to God and that we ultimately find our true identity in knowing God and becoming like Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that the arts also facilitated for people was um, this feeling of openness to the divine. So one of the qualities of art is that there's a lot of nuance and mystery. So if I write a poem and you read it, you're going to interpret it um, in a way that makes sense given your past and your experiences and your use of language that might be similar to mine, but it also might be very different. And yet it communicates real meaning. And young adults found that to be a very spiritual thing, going to the play or going to the theater and being deeply convicted about something. And they felt like God spoke through a lot of different artistic medium. One um, young adult, and this was, it's funny because now my kids are old enough to play video games. And that was never something that was a really big part of my life. But a number, uh, at least two or three young adults in this interview process told me that they felt like their creative gifts were on display or being used in video game gaming and creating uh, worlds for other people to play in or creating a specific quest that others needed to go on. And so they felt that that um, kind of creative action helps them understand God's relationship to the world and how um, God was present even creating and making things through them, which I thought was really deeply theological and insightful about um, what does it mean to be a maker made in the image of the one who made us. I once heard somebody say that if the Presbyterians were going to have a mascot, it would be Mr. Potato Head because it's a very large head and little tiny hands and feet. Um, (laughs) Just emphasizing the intellectual nature or the word focused nature of, of the Reformed tradition and how we come to know and understand and explain our understanding of God. What you're encouraging people to do um, and that, that, this age bracket um, appears very open to is to embrace an aesthetic practical reason or as you've described embodied ways of knowing Um, can you explain a little bit what that means an embodied way of knowing and then can you talk about what's at stake in embracing this in the church oh yeah so um my area in practical theology that i study is um, christian education so ways that we're shaped and formed, um, ways that we learn. And so um, I read a lot of educational theory and John Dewey has a book called Art as Experience. And he actually in this book is talking about kind of a theory of knowledge. And he says that when we think about knowledge or ways of knowing, we often think of it in terms of ideas. And he says that there's actually an aesthetic dimension to all of our ideas And he talks about this kind of as having your cake and eating it too. So there's knowledge you can have about cake, but you're not going to really know what cake is until you eat cake or you make a cake or bake a cake for someone or you go to a cake shop and there's an aesthetic way of knowing cake. And he says that that is a quality that's present in all of the things that we do, um, all the things that we know actually. And so one of the ways that you're teaching people and shaping people in a congregation is you shape them through the architecture of the building. 
So what does it mean to have a church whose front doors are wide open during the week and where people come in through the front door and as they come in, they are, um, you know, sitting in a large circle where their center of action is really in the middle of the room. And how's that different? Let's say, how does it shape, how are people shaped differently if they come to a church with a large parking lot in the back of the church and they come in through a back door that only the insiders know about and they wander their way through a maze of stairs. And when they finally get there, they find their seat that they sit in every week. (laughs) I'm describing two different churches I've been part of and they shape us differently. One of the young adults that I interviewed was a dancer and she said that the church she went to actually hired her to reconsider how bodies move throughout the space in their congregation. I thought this was so profound. So then they thought about, you know, are there moments when we hold hands in the church with one another? Are there moments when we turn and face a different direction? And how are bodies orchestrated through the space? Do we process in? Who processes? And I think that one of the things I learned from these young adults was that those details matter. The art that hangs on the walls, a lot of schools like my own here, SPU, they're doing an assessment or um, kind of revisiting a lot of the art that hangs on our walls and saying, does this reflect our community or our values? And if not, how do we go about changing those pieces of art? And I think another thing that I learned about young adults is that if we perform something for them or we do it for them and think, oh, they'll really like this, it feels very inauthentic and is like repulsive (laughs) to young adults. Um, And so while I don't think young adult tastes or aesthetic, you know, preferences should be the only aesthetic that we pay attention to in our congregations, If we're doing something, if we want to create a second worship service, for example, for young adults, getting all the 50-somethings together to play their favorite praise music is not what's going to attract young adults. But if we, you know, say to them, what are the things that would be really meaningful and worshipful to you right now? Would it be meeting in a house church? Would it be, you know, gathering together for both service and worship, you know, in public spaces? How do we go about doing that? And there are different groups that are trying to think creatively about this. The Zoe Project at Princeton just was a big effort to to do this, um, to give young adults some of the leadership. And for those in congregations where they are not connected to some big grant project like the Zoe Project, I would say that what we learned from that project and what I learned from my own research is that the young adults who are at all connected to the church would love to have someone take them out for a cup of coffee and just listen to them just, you know, to say, hey, tell me what's going on with young adults today. Teach me, you know, how's your faith? Um, What do you see God doing in our community? What do you think we should be doing in our community? And they have plenty to say. Okay, so here's, this is what I want to know next, which is, how have you been able to practice embodied ways of knowing in your own life? Like, what's your own preferred expression of art? Have you found an affinity for some of this yourself? I think about kind of my creativity being on display probably in two, well, one is that I love to sew. So I like to sew clothes. I like to um, cross stitch and sew quilts, sew blankets for people when they have a baby. So that's one of the things that I like to do. I find that I get into a space of flow. It's a term that 
Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi um, uses to talk about when you enter this space where you just feel like time passes and you don't even know that it's passed. You know, you're just really into the thing you're doing and you forget to eat. But another, but probably a more practical or interesting way that I have been become aware of embodied ways of knowing is to think about teaching. So that's professionally what I spend most of my time doing. And so in the classroom, I've been thinking about how are the aesthetic choices that I make, the different ways bodies interact in my classroom, the different ways knowledge is brought in, how does that teach and shape my students? So I teach a freshman course called University Foundations 1000. Uh, Christian faith. And the idea of this class is just to expose freshmen to kind of some basics of the Christian faith. So I've been reading a lot of literature on racism and whiteness and been thinking a lot about how do I decenter whiteness in my classroom. And white ways of knowing usually involve kind of a powerful authority who hands out the knowledge to people and then tests them on, you know, have you remembered what I have taught you? And so in order to decenter or disrupt that pattern in my classroom, I try to bring about or teach the students that they each are a source of knowledge. And I do that by having them share stories about their own lives. So storytelling is one way that I've brought um, kind of the arts into my classroom and they share pictures or a special t-shirt or a song that's really meaningful to them that helps us know who they are. So they get to kind of connect with a classroom and express their own identity um, through sharing stories and images or artifacts that are important to them. I also, in my classroom, will often have bring in pieces of art or I'll have students make art um, to kind of say, you know, what are, what are the things that this might communicate to us or how are the different interpretations of this one piece of art all in some ways accurate and accurate reflection or interpretation of understanding this. And that has brought about, um, I think it, it invites students to see that there's theological dimensions to all art that's out there. Artists are usually the ones who are our prophets asking really hard questions of society. Um, and it also makes them feel empowered that they have an interpretation that's valuable that they can offer that other people will maybe learn from or have a deep insight from. Who should read this book? Who do you hope will read this and chew on this and work on its implications for the church? That's a great question. Um, I think anybody who's working with young adults. So, I mean, especially if you have a congregation and you're thinking, man, why are there no young adults in this congregation? Um, this would be a valuable resource. People who are living in a community that has a college nearby or a large population of young adults, would, it would be valuable to start thinking intentionally, how do we build relationships between our congregation and these young adults? Another uh, group that might be interested in this are artists um, or people who do art education. Um, one of the traditions that is out there is to only think of art as for professionals. But the perspective I take is that Art is not valuable because of its high quality. That's one kind of conversation. But art and art making is something that's really valuable because it helps us be the humans God made us to be. And that's something that anyone can do. And the quality of the art that you produce is not what's important, but embodying the act of making 
putting yourself out there, being vulnerable. And then sometimes our art can even speak to ourselves where we create something or make something and we go back and look at it later or read it later. Or maybe we're playing a video game and we try to actually do the quest we've created. And we have some deep insight about ourselves or about God. That's great. Thank you, Katie, so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me, Dale. It's delightful to talk with you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Ni Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.